I'm a believer. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? Hello and welcome to Flashback, American Historians on Movies. I'm Katie Fapp, a doctoral student in American History at the University of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, and I'm here to explore American history as seen through the lens of America's most popular history maker, Hollywood. Each episode, I'm joined by another historian as we discuss a movie that covers their own field of expertise. Today, I'm joined by Louis DeFreitz to discuss 1997's Titanic, James Cameron's romantic disaster epic about the 1912 sinking of the ship of the same name. Louis is a temporary assistant professor of American history at the University of Cambridge. His research explores changing conceptions of race and nation through the prism of Americans overseas in the decades after the Civil War. Welcome, Louis. Hi, Katie. Uh, thanks very much for having me. It's nice of course, to be here. No, thank you uh, for coming on the show and being the first to record for season two. It's very exciting. Yes, yeah. It's a privilege to be asked. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Great. Um, so if we just wanted to start and talk a bit, little bit about how your research relates to Titanic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I look a little bit at the opposite direction to, to the voyage that takes place in the movie Titanic. Uh, there's a lot that's been written about people traveling from Europe and from Britain to the United States in the decades after the Civil War for a number of reasons, and that kind of is captured a bit in the film. My work looks a little bit more at how Americans moved their way around Europe and Britain in particular in the decades after the Civil War and how they talked about nationality. But the point where it really connects is that there's a chapter in my dissertation where I talk specifically about the transatlantic voyage and about how people experienced oceanic travel from the US to Europe, obviously, as this kind of crystallisation of what it meant to be American in the decades after the Civil War. So there's points at which that really like comes through through the film here, but there's other points at which like that doesn't connect at all because the experience travelling east to west is totally different to what it was like from west to east. So there were points at which I was like, ah, yeah, that's totally like what I'm trying Spot to get on. when I write. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. there's other times where it's, yeah, it's just totally different. So And I assume most of your passengers didn't find, you know, dramatic love affairs with people from the uh the steerage passage on yeah we'll get into that but yeah there's no there's not so much of that kind of like love across boundaries in the kind of stuff i'm i'm looking at okay, but yeah, yeah interesting great. to get an insight into it here yeah um sorry for rose and jack um yeah. <laughs> no that's really great um and then uh, before we get into our 60 second plot description as well i was just wondering if you wanted to also talk maybe a little bit about your relationship with the movie itself because um this is maybe the biggest movie we've covered on the podcast yet uh titanic is uh, many things it was the highest grossing movie of all time the most expensive movie ever made at the time until superhero movies came and just that's a regular 200 million dollars is a regular amount for a movie to cost nowadays um yeah it's it's and its cultural impact is ginormous uh in many many different areas so if you just wanted to kind of talk about your relationship with that 
Yes, absolutely. So I hadn't seen Titanic until this week just gone when we agreed to watch it for this podcast. Um, for the first, I'd say, 24 years of my life, that hadn't been a conscious decision on my part by any means. So this film came out in 1997. I was born in 1994, so was aware of Titanic as this kind of cultural phenomenon, but kind of missed that period of it being like in the Same. zeitgeist, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And as I got into movies and watching films, it was the kind of thing that... It was of interest to me. I didn't actively avoid it, but it was just it never really piqued my interest, so to speak. I was more interested in like other James Cameron movies, Terminator okay. in particular. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but in the last five years, once I started work on a PhD, I shared some work with uh, some members of the American History Workshop in Cambridge, and a bunch of people in that workshop all said, "This is really like the Titanic. You should watch the Titanic. You should go away and watch the Titanic." And having not watched it in that period between people telling me to watch it and now. That kind of four years gap in like intervening gap was probably quite deliberate on my part because I didn't want to be You didn't want I didn't to. want to have yeah, I didn't want to have my impression of that period totally like reoriented by this Hollywood blockbuster. So right. yeah. Which I think a lot of other historians have also pointed out this movie is a big introduction to the wider public of this period. So you yeah. wanted your thesis to be untitanic tainted. Yeah. So so I realized as I was doing some reading kind of in, in the build up to recording this podcast that yeah, it turns out there's a long kind of historical lineage of other historians trying to avoid the Titanic. So there's this historian, John Naxtone Graham, who ended up writing a book about the Titanic in the final years of his career. But he's like this historian of the age of uh, like steamships and oceanic navigation and had really consciously avoided talking about the Titanic because it's such this looming, it's this looming presence that kind of like reorients and potentially kind of distorts our understanding of this period of um, travel yeah. and transportation that I guess I was following in his footsteps, but also just being quite stubborn and not wanting yeah. to follow through on the recommendations of my friends. I so. can, I mean, I can definitely um, attest to that. There's tons of classic movies I haven't seen for many different reasons. And I mean, I feel like by, at this point, it kind of just boils down to like, well, I'm being stubborn and I don't want to watch it. But yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Even so though I know nice. I probably really like it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it was nice to have this opportunity to sit down and watch it uh, for a real historical purpose and to come through. And kind yeah, of, yeah, it was interesting watching it with kind of like, I guess, the historian's eye because the last time I watched it was, and the the last time I watched it was the first time I watched it. And I also, um, this is 10 years ago in 2012 when the movie was re-released in 3D okay. for the 100-year anniversary of its sinking. Mm -hmm. um, well, the, the ship, not the movie. but um, mm -hmm. And my friends had all seen it and I'd never seen it. And that was kind of a crime against teenage girlhood at the time still um yeah. <laughs> so we went to go see it and yeah seeing it then was a very different experience from seeing it now you know as both as a teenager and just as you know somebody who's been trained in history now um and yeah it went down uh I think I noticed a bit more things this time than I did the first time <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and ju just the fact that this was when this movie was released uh, in the 1990s the fact that it was such an event and it was so kind of omnipresent it seems like in the culture uh i don't know if there's really any equipment there's not even though there's been like high grossing films since then i'm not sure if there's been an equivalent of that superhero movies are huge but they're right. also kind of occupying their own kind of niche there's their like own kind niche culture there's yeah. so many of them now right they kind of they're starting to blend together kind of like mm -hmm. the westerns of the uh 21st century yeah and even um so the mo this was the highest grossing movie of all time until james cameron's next movie um, or at least next narrative feature, um, Avatar came out and smashed that. But Avatar certainly hasn't had the same amount of staying power as Titanic has. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could be for a lot of reasons. But 
we'll see um, how well the sequel does when it comes out this December. Yeah. Yeah. And Titanic is just, it's Titanic, right? It's the one you make you know, the king of the world. Like, I mean, it's still constantly referenced today, whether it's like in meme culture or my heart will go on on TikToks and whatnot, right? Like it's still so dominant, but I guess before we get into maybe like more of the historicity of Titanic, uh, we should do our 60 second plot description, okay. which I challenge our guest to describe the plot of the movie in 60 seconds or less, which has been done. Um, so any listeners who have not seen Titanic, whoever you may be, I guess Lewis hadn't seen it either. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's still people out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can, um, can, uh, you know, we can get the plot of the movie out of the way so we can focus on other things. So with that, Lewis, would you, like to undertake yes yeah my disclaimer is that this movie was more than three hours long yes right and i'm summarizing it in a minute yeah and i recognize that and i'm gonna set up my timer here or stopwatch and i i believe in you though because it's a long movie but it's not i don't know i don't think it's entirely plotty but we can get into that yeah all right ready absolutely let's go for it three two one go okay we'll start in the prologue it's 1996 and a crew is exploring the wreck of the Titanic, uh, this lost ship looking for this precious diamond called the Heart of the Ocean. An elderly woman sees an illustration that's recovered from the wreck and recognises the subject of this illustration as herself wearing this diamond. She's whisked to the location and begins to tell her story. Flashback, first half of the film, it's 1912 and essentially we have a love story between two passengers from the other sides of the track, so to speak. We have... Rose DeWitt Bucater, who is the elderly woman in the present, played by Kate Winslet in 1912, who is a wealthy woman from Philadelphia, and Jack Dawson, an artist from Wisconsin, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. They encounter a number of obstacles, the biggest one being that Rose is engaged to be married, but we'll get into that in a bit. And the second half of the film is essentially a slow motion disaster movie as the Titanic hits an iceberg, and then the scale of the catastrophe becomes increasingly evident to the passengers. Jack sacrifices himself to save Rose, who survives by clinging onto a door and is eventually rescued uh, into a lifeboat. All right, that's it. Okay. Well yeah. done. Yeah, that's, yeah. Do you want to finish up? You have like, I don't know, maybe like one more plot beat to hit if... I, I, guess, I guess maybe because we'll spend less time on the 1990s area of the plot. I guess the only thing that I miss is that after uh, Rose is rescued, we're back in 1996. Right. Turns out Rose has lived a very full life without Jack, mm-hmm. but she's had the heart of the ocean with her the whole time. And at the end of the film, she throws it overboard, mm-hmm. retires to her bed, where presumably she either falls asleep or dies. I think yeah, that's left it's, unclear. It's, it's, yeah, he left it ambiguous for a reason. But I think most yeah. people think she dies. Yeah, I that's thought that I she died. Yeah. yeah, And then in her dreams, she is reunited with Jack on the grand staircase of the Titanic with all the characters from the film. kind of. But only the nice ones. On. Only the nice ones, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're right. Yeah. Her mother and her fiancé are not present. <laughs> I didn't notice that her mother wasn't there. That's oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. I don't think she was. Maybe somebody who's more eagle-eyed will see her. But there's definitely, you know, you have like Molly Brown there, very present, and mm-hmm. the ship um, builders and so on. But yeah, thank you. That that was yeah, pretty much it. Yeah, this you know tragic love story set amidst this like what the audience knows is about to be the biggest one of the biggest disasters in maritime history. I think I looked it up. There's only been it was the biggest peacetime maritime disaster until the 80s when a ferry in the Philippines mm-hmm. went down with 4,000 people on board, which is oh well, yeah. Yeah, sad. Um, but yes, Titanic. So, a great plot description. I think you said you gave me an in there with um, she's engaged to be married. So I'm wondering if we can start there because I think a lot of certainly my growing up, my idea of this kind of um, 
Gilded Age and Progressive Era about, you know, kind of very wealthy oil and steel barons and the daughters of those oil and steel barons going to Europe to find um, like gentry husbands, right? And like the kind of idea of, you know, you have this wealthy American heiress who marries into an aristocratic European family who has no more money anymore. Yeah. Which I think is based on the idea, um, one of the Vanderbilts, uh, I can't remember her name. And of course that's how you get uh, Winston Churchill kind yeah. of being an American or being half American. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of absent from this movie in an interesting way. It's reversed. The roles are reversed. And also everybody's American. There's no yeah. kind of like transatlantic uh, mixing here. Yeah, that's an interesting one because there are non-Americans in the movie, but aside from the, like the British crew and the people involved with the White Star Line, all the non-Americans are poor immigrants. So we have right. Irish and Italian characters, whereas, yeah, that kind of British ruling class are, are, are absent. Yeah, a lot has been written about American heiress is essentially propping up the failing European aristocracies on the other sides of the Atlantic during the period. And I guess that with the kind of historian's eye, we can look at seeing what's happening here between Rose and Cal Hockey, uh, mm-hmm. who's her fiancé, right, as essentially happening adjacent to all of this is what's happening. Like, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that their arrangement, which is that Rose is actually from a failing Kind yes, of old her. Family. I think in the movie, her her father has died recently and has left them a surprise amount of debts. So she's marrying into Cal to kind of save she and her 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 and her mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, it, but it's interesting because the the kind of stereotypical depiction of that relationship is old money uh, using new money to prop itself up. Whereas Cal yes. Hockey, by this point, isn't really new money either. Like the no. kind of his personification, his characterization, in fact, like the kind of. One of the biggest conflicts in the movie is he, he doesn't get on with the unsinkable Molly Brown because yes. she is new money. The so icon, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah like probably, <laughs> although I think Cal Hockey is maybe the most interesting uh, character in the movie, actually. Okay, interesting. Why do you say? Yeah. Yeah. Well, precisely because of that. So this this is the man who uh, Rose DeWitt Bucator is marrying, played by Billy Zane, fantastic yep. actor. So good. Um, uh, his performance is so great. <laughs> And it just really gets into this kind of tension in the American like upper class at this mm. period. And especially how, I guess from like James Cameron view, how, how people like look back at that period historically. That Definitely. he is both not one with the kind of old world aristocracy. He kind of is quite resentful at times of the way things are carried out by the British crew on board the ship. Becomes particularly apparent um, during the shipwreck. Like he keeps trying to pay his way onto a lifeboat. Lifeboats, yeah. Yeah, and, and in the end, that's... he only gets on when he finds an abandoned child crying. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah because his 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 bribe is temporarily accepted and then refused by the crew member who he offers it to. But at the same time, he's kind of thinks that uh, Kathy Bates's character is kind of gauche and yeah, yeah. And then vulgar. Rose's mother thinks that as well. There's a, you know, it's very clear. Like she she gets she gets on board, and all the other, um, I guess, like uh, first class women passengers is seen are kind of you know turning up their nose at Kathy who has this very broad or sorry I should say Molly um has this very broad kind of western big American accent right and is this she's a really fascinating person big bombastic character um yeah yeah yeah, yeah she's a great character yeah and she's I think, I think she's my favorite <laughs> and I think she's supposed to be a much more sympathetic character I think. oh absolutely yeah, yeah the audience yeah. is supposed to identify them so then Cal Hockey this is he a steel tycoon in the movie? I think. Yeah, I think it's steel. Yeah. Yeah. Who was it like in the ninety in the kind of Gilded Age era? This would have been this kind of like titans of industry that um, kind of all of American culture is kind of like holding up on a pedestal. Whereas now, 
from the perspective of the 1990s, he's kind of this man without a constituency that he's like, right. yeah. It, well, yeah, he, obviously his like actions within the, the plot, his kind of jealousy towards uh, Jack and Rose kind of he's seen as kind of this like, chauvinistic guy who expects Rose to follow everything he says. Yeah. Yeah. But that totally is then seen as compatible with like his position within American society. And I guess within transatlantic society at this point, because yeah, like he's got dealings in, in Paris. He's a Philistine, of course, as well. Like Rose brings, uh, of course she has all these (laughs) beautiful artworks that we know. I did not sink in the Titanic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She pulls them out and you're like, Oh, that's a Picasso. That's a Degas. Um, Matisse, right. Or is it Monet? Uh, no, it must be Monet. I think Monet. Yeah. Um, yeah, very, it's very interesting, right. Kind of, but, we can get into that too, I guess. Now, the, this idea that um, a few a few historians kind of commented, I think both the reviews in the American Historical Review and the Journal of American History pointed out that the movie's popularity in the '90s really comments on, you know, moviegoers' per I, I guess idea or the way they perceive, right? Like you mentioned, like the Gilded and Progressive Era, and how that reflected '90s society. And I think one historian. I'm paraphrasing here, says something to the effect of it shows that in the 90s we all hate like the rich basically or something, right? Yeah. Um, because this movie does, it does not, I mean, besides um, Kathy, Lee, or Kathy Bates' character, Molly Brown, most of, and then I guess, I suppose Rose, who actually really hates kind of like her class and her situation she's in, she literally compares it to a slave ship, which we can also get into. Mm-hmm. Um everybody you know kind of the other like uh first class passengers are just shown in very like despicable uh positions right they're just you know they're paying their way onto the lifeboats uh rose during yeah when they're first getting on the lifeboats rose's mother asks if the boats will be you know still separated by class and you're like oh jesus like that's when it really comes to the forefront right you know a little disaster and everybody's still trying to keep this pretense of um you know differences between human lives and Rose, I guess, is the audience surrogate for that in a way, because she's very much this young woman who is, you know, part of this class, but is very much, I think, has like 21st century ideals of what, you know, she's like, she likes the modern art that's not, you know, in vogue yet. And she never says she supports women's suffrage, but I imagine she would. She smokes, yeah. you know, she's a bit more of like a rebel. And ha- I think mm-hmm. what the audience would expect a young woman to behave, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I I guess throwing this back to you then, Kate, because your your research yes. is a little bit on like <laughs> women who are working around the world, like working around the world and interested in suffrage at the time. Would Rose kind of fit in that kind of the the archetypal women's suffrage campaigner around the world in the early twentieth century? So it's interesting. I feel like a lot of the women I look at are maybe more of they're not really like of the same kind of like uh, height of uh, you know gilded age money as Rose seems to be. Um, they're maybe probably more like I would describe upper middle class rather than like upper class. When they travel, mm-hmm. they're usually doing so second class on boats. Yeah. Um, they're certainly not traveling on like the White Star Line. They're taking um, different freighters and steamers or not freighters, but they're taking different steamers across the Atlantic. Um, and they're also older than Rose. So at this point in 1912, yeah. you're starting to see some youth in the suffrage movement. But it's for the most part women in their 30s and 40s still who are at least leading the movement, right? I mean, one of the fascinating things I find about the suffrage movement is that it is so vast and varied. Molly Brown herself was a suffragist. Um, She also ran for Senate in Colorado before the 19th Amendment was passed, but then she pulled out her campaign to go help, I believe, um, the Red Cross 
uh, French relief for World War One. Right. So you do see some of that here. Uh, I think also it's interesting. I think in relation to my own work, it kind of stuck out how this is 1912. And I think currently we think maybe like 1912 women, the place of women in society being further along than like, say, the 1890s. But I think from like Rose's mother and Cal, you can kind of see that a lot of that was still in place, right? Especially in like that kind of, at least the movie, right? Whether mm-hmm. there were like plenty of upper class suffragists who f- helped fund the movement particularly and make it more acceptable. But even by 1912, you know, we're eight years out from the 19th Amendment being ratified by the states. There is still kind of like a resistance to this idea of like a progressive new woman. Yeah. So that was my woman thoughts yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and that that's it i guess like cal hockey is pulling is trying to pull rose away from from right. that if we're kind of like reading that into it when he says we are royalty rose as he's putting the heart of the ocean around her neck for the first yeah. time that's kind of like yeah she's definitely not part of this kind of like new women phenomenon at least in his eyes no yeah the uh, the big the big problem is yeah class on board the ship and i think your your point is dead right in terms of like how class like structures both the the first part of the movie and then the second part and people's reaction to the disaster. There's a slight caveat, I guess, in that most of the Americans, including Rose's mother, kind of um, is looking to kind of get on the first class lifeboats and get out of, get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. Right. We do see that there's a one character who I thought was fascinating because apparently this is based on a true story. John Jacob Astor, who's like walking down, yes. and suiting up and putting on his uh, like his dinner suit. Was it Astor or um, Guggenheim? Oh, it might have been Guggenheim. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, Astor was the richest man on the ship. Guggenheim's right. the guy who's going down with his servant. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That that. So they're kind of accepting of their fate. Right. This is maybe kind of like gentlemanly idea of going down with a ship, right? Yeah. yeah. In a way that aligns them with more, and I'm aware that all of this is a kind of historical construction, and it's not based in really reality, but with the British response to the sinking, because after all, this is very much an American story, and the British crew with some very notable exceptions, do seem to like embody and personify in a movie that kind of like stiff upper lip, kind of going down with a ship, the band playing, et cetera, et yes. cetera. Yeah. 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 That, I don't know. I, I, I guess like Guggenheim and Astor kind of a, a more assimilated and incorporated into that world in a way that even Cal Hockey right. never Maybe fully like does. Maybe like even older money, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of yeah. There's different Stratification like, of wealth, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's this these stratifications of wealth, and it's a lot to do with like culture and taste and sensibility. Mm. Um, and Rose is kind of having that system demystified a little bit by her through her time on the ship, right. by both spending time around these other very wealthy people, but also by spending time amongst steerage. Right, and I mean it's the steerage as well, which I think we can get into a bit with kind of how that focuses maybe more on like the Irish experience specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then it just. To, uh, while we're still kind of talking about like the British White Star employees, um, mm-hmm. the man who designed the ship, who is, you know, kind of adjusting the clock as the ship is going down and you kind of, okay, well then he's like, you know, resigned to his fate. Victor Garber is Thomas Andrews, who is, okay, you know, yeah. gives, yeah, who gives Rose the tour of the ship and mm-hmm. is the one I think of, of the three White Star employees we see the most of, right? The captain, yep. um, Andrews, and then the man who leaves the ship, who yeah. is... Uh, J. Bruce Ismay. 
Ismay, yeah. Right. Yeah. He's kind of the most sympathetic of the three, I think, of, you know, saying Absolutely. like, oh, I wanted to put more lifeboats on, but they thought it looked too cluttered, right? And yes. Yeah. And Ismay, it kind of plays more of a minor role in the film, mm. although he is seen as kind of a coward. He gets on the first lifeboat that yeah. he can. But I, from what I understand, this is an interesting thing. I like what popular perceptions of Titanic were before Titanic the movie. Yeah. Because from, from what I understand... In the kind of decades that followed the disaster, Ismay, more than anyone, is the real kind of like public enemy number one when it comes to the sinking of the Titanic. And okay. he definitely has some culpability in the movie here, right. but it's not all kind of projected onto him. In the yeah, because the movie, I mean, it's, it's kind of a combination of things, right? Because I think he's the one who's saying like, oh, I want to get to New York and make headlines. Uh, I want to get there, you know, before they expect us. And then the captain is kind of, I guess, acquiesces to his... Uh, demands to go faster, even though that seems to impede their ability to see icebergs. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure on the that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the dynamics of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's so he. So you're saying that he's the guy who kind of the public points the finger to in the real Absolutely. aftermath of the Titanic. Yeah, he's vilified in the years following following the wreck. I, I recently, I, so again, I'm not a researcher on the Titanic, but I was right. recently in Belfast and I went to the the Belfast Titanic experience, which is like a big day trip for people um visiting on cruise liners as well as people in the city and it goes through all these popular narratives around the titanic that came out in the decades following and ismay really was vilified i think he ended up retiring early uh, just lived just fishing in a village in galway somewhere um, gosh yeah yeah he was a villain uh, uh, he was vilified there was a nazi uh propaganda film made yes. about the sinking of the titanic and yes. he was vilified in that as i was going to bring that like, up yeah the different yeah. different adaptations of the disaster yeah and um, ismay is know. depicted in that as this evil jewish capitalist the... who's just oh, obsessed with yeah like efficiency above all and is yeah willing to kill people Aye. yeah yeah Aye. <laughs> um absolutely but sorry i feel like i steered you steered us away a little bit from um maybe this idea of kind of like american versus english behavior not behavior on the titanic i don't know just like because right you you obviously mentioned at the top of this you kind of focus more on maybe like how americans behave in europe right and how they kind of think of american national or you know national identity from a year you know how they learn to be american in europe Mm -hmm. um and obviously like you said this movie focuses mostly on you know the east to west passage versus the west to east passage yeah and just, I don't know, what do you think of that? Like, just the, I guess, the lack of British people on the boat besides the White Star employees and... Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to go look through... I guess it, one of the things I like about this podcast is that you don't focus so much on kind of plot holes and historical accuracy. So right. I'm not sure how historically accurate it is that there aren't many British people in first class. Right. But it's very interesting that instead we see these different milieus of like American upper class people like figuring out each other in relation to one another. Right. Because that's kind of what I write about as well. I write about Americans in Europe who are interacting against British and kind of French and German people. But they're also constantly interacting against different Americans in Europe. That They're aware that they're kind of acting as representatives, sometimes in competition with other people. So suffrage campaigners and like people... Uh, yeah, arguing. Even like temperance campaigners are also competing against music hall performers mm-hmm. or against Wild West shows or things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. which is what we see a... here, right? Because yeah, yeah. You, like you said earlier, like the Molly Brown and the um, the Roses family, and then Cal. Yeah, yeah, and that's partly some what what makes the, the these ocean liners unique. Uh, and I want to mm-hmm. talk a bit more about the kind of segregation between the classes yes, please, because that's yeah. but that, that's the, like the real structure that um, divides the ship. But it also because things are divided into first, second and third class, you also get these collisions within the classes that you wouldn't get anywhere else in society. So mm. you do have 
Cal Hockey having to deal with the unsinkable Molly Brown for like sustained periods of time. And we get all of these kind of like generative encounters where people are figuring out their own class position right. on board the ship, even if they're just interacting with other people right. in their class. Like the Titanic, obviously the design of the Titanic is incredibly like luxurious and over the top and really like opulent in a way that even most of these first class passengers probably wouldn't have their homes kind this, of separated this fancy, style of. Yeah. yeah yeah it's this kind of like flattery of people who like once they can afford a certain ticket then they're afforded entry into this social circle i suppose that probably isn't actually being replicated on either end on either end of the the atlantic right because i mean you still kind of uh, there are right like i don't know like every day like you walk down the street <laughs> you can't i guess that the boat allows you a kind of like physical geography to kind of demarcate and literally right it goes from like to the top you know where you like have yeah. access to air to you know under the water as it were mm-hmm. and eventually also literally under the water because that makes a big point of when the ship sinks yeah yeah exactly but then even within those classes there was all these different right. kind of encounters and conversations that wouldn't happen anywhere yeah. else uh, robert lewis stevenson the scottish poet wrote traveled from yeah he 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 traveled from from britain to the united states in the 1870s and described ocean liners in that period as a small iron country in the <laughs> sense that not only is there all this like diversity and right. you get to meet people from different backgrounds but also that there's this very clear stratification of the classes that's kind of being enforced and being made on board the ship in ways mm-hmm. that aren't always as evident on shore so i guess maybe with that as well we can go where we can move on to talk maybe talking about like steerage and how the steerage class is um, portrayed in the movie mm-hmm. and just yeah yeah we're so to be clear this is like jack's um i don't know is it technically called third class or is, is that interchangeable steerage and third class or yeah i think it's that third class is the the name that the line uses and okay. steerage by this point is a derogatory term oh okay someone asks jack sorry, at dinner. Yeah. <laughs> no well, no i'm not offended on behalf yeah. of third class passengers but yeah. someone asks jack at dinner when he's right. in first class how are things in steerage and right. i think that's meant as a jibe because kind of like a kick okay yeah exactly yeah third class on board the titanic is far there's far better accommodations for third class passengers on board the titanic than uh previous generations mm. of ocean liners and even compared to most of the, the ships at the time like the white star line was very proud of its the accommodations that it made for third class passengers okay there's a huge progression from say the 1840s where there's mass migration from ireland during the famine and on these so-called coffin ships mm. Then through the 1870s and 1880s, where things aren't anywhere near as bad, but there's real, like, no concern for sanitation, for hygiene, for separation of the genders or anything like that to this point here, where we see, we only see um, Jack's cabin very briefly, but he's in a bunk room with, I think, three other single men. Right. Yeah. 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 And that has been a kind of change that had been implemented over the past two or three decades. Previously, people would be, like, put together indiscriminately in these big long rooms, Mm. but there's attempts to kind of... um, both improve conditions, but also to separate the sexes on right. board. Kind of the ship. have the technology to enforce these kind of like gender and class uh, differentiations. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's partly about like a kind of extending um, like that kind of code of morality mm. downwards from like the directors of these steamships to steerage passengers. So usually, if you look at uh, the arrangement of like third class accommodations on these ships by this point, you normally have single women at one end of um, at the deck, mm-hmm. married couples in the middle as a kind of buffer, and then single men at the other end. So it's a, also an attempt to kind of prevent interesting, you, like, like a gradient of yeah, 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 like meddling. Yeah, yeah. like the, the married couples are like there to stop anything untowards happening. Not that yeah, obviously. Right, you're on a ship happen. for yeah. what is it like? Tw- how long did the passage like take? Like twelve days was it or? 
Yeah, it could be a lot shorter than that by this point. It okay. could be, but I think the Titanic was set to take about 12 days, but it could take around eight days if they're doing a direct crossing from New York to Southampton. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think they mentioned they stopped at Cherbourg. Um, I think that's where they picked yeah. up Molly Brown, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and they stopped at um, Queenstown, which is known as Cove now in Ireland, like, okay. on the way over. But that's okay. not depicted in the film. Yeah, that, I, I don't know. Yeah, the movie shows that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, ste- steerage in the film is depicted really as this joyous place whenever we do encounter it. Like, right, when we yeah. Go down. I mean, I think the biggest, yeah. right, the biggest significant scene we see is when um, Jack takes Rose down for like a big party and there's just yeah. like, kind of like Irish uh, music being played the fiddle mm-hmm. and there's just big dancing and like it seems to be i don't think it's guinness but it looks to be guinness mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody's you know has these giant pint glasses which is a very different scene from kind of the stayed dinner that's happening upstairs yeah absolutely yeah but, and that's a very um romantic like I, th- I think it's definitely true to some extent but it's also mm. quite a romanticized 90s view of the gilded age and progressive era that the real fun was happening downstairs that right. parties did take place um, but when Robert Louis Stevenson writes about steerage in the 1870s and 1880s, there's also like squalid conditions. There's obviously poor kind of like rationing of food. Um, right. Yeah, things aren't like as hunky-dory and rosy as they seem. Like that class system is in place for a, for a reason, mm. I suppose. It might be more liberating to be like in third class, but you're also definitely not getting uh, a fair shake of things in the same way. Right. Uh, yeah, I wonder, yeah. you say that now and I wonder like where they got all that beer. <laughs> yeah 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 uh, just imagine people bringing like a kegger on board or something <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think there were like yeah it was made available but yeah probably just not as kind of free-flowing free-flowing as, as we see it. in the movie yeah <laughs> yeah the, the, the irish angle of this film is an interesting one i yes. suppose yeah but, um because there are a number of irish characters uh who don't have big speaking roles but obviously there's a presence of yeah like the music that's kind of traditional irish music mm-hmm. being played in the steerage cabin uh, Tommy Ryan, who's I think guess like the biggest Irish character, who's shot right. uh, during the evacuation. The shot in the uh, stomach, yeah. Yeah, he says towards the start of the film um, that the ship isn't English because fifteen thousand Irishmen built yes. this ship, which is an interesting line uh, because I guess to a certain extent that it is true, it is absolutely true. But um, this ship was built in the Harlan and Wolf shipyards in Belfast, which mm-hmm. was. Belfast is in Ireland uh, and it was Ireland at the time it hadn't yet been partitioned into Northern Ireland but mm. the people who built these ships for the most part um, would have been unionists Harlan and Wolf employed like very sectarian hiring practices the whole way through the late 19th century there were some Catholics would have been uh, employed and like this is something that they stressed very much at the Titanic Museum in Belfast that like there were opportunities for Catholic workers but they were very very small and most of the Limited. people who worked in it would have been Protestants and unionists and Harland and Wolf, the shipmakers, mm-hmm. envisioned it very much as a British project rather than an Irish project. An Irish. Interesting. Okay. So yeah. maybe, you see, yeah, again, we can kind of see like the 90s idea of what Ireland is kind of sneaking yeah. into the movie or not yeah. just sneaking, and it's great, shaping yeah. the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great that like Tommy Ryan, the character, can like stake ownership of it, of it in mm. this interesting way. But that's definitely not how the, At the, time the shipbuilders yeah, envisioned yeah. it. Yeah. I think it's yeah. interesting as well. Obviously, this movie is made by an American man, um, James mm-hmm. Cameron. And as we've discussed, like has a very American perspective on the passage. And I think that also really comes through on the idea of most of the passenger the passengers in third class being mm-hmm. Irish. Right. This idea. Yeah. I mean, so many Americans claim they have Irish heritage. Right. You know, it's like. The idea, like, my great-great-great-great-grandmother was Irish or whatever. Yeah. Um, and this really strong Irish-American identity coming through in that way, right? Because I think, uh, I don't know, this is also just my, um, just, you know, anecdotal experience of going through the American school system. 
but the idea of you know this kind of like the late 19th century early 20th century as being a period of mass migration uh i think to many school children just kind of is a uh undifferentiated stretch from like the 1840s to mm-hmm. like the 1910s um yeah. and from what I understand by this time we'd seen there obviously still were there's Irish um, migration to the U.S. but it was you know more there was also more you know southern Europeans and so on right and we see a little bit of that in this movie but they're not really uh, centered as it were yeah so there's Jack's Italian friend uh, whose name I forget but who also dies Um, but yeah the, 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 the critical mass of people in third class is very clearly Seems Irish seems to be like yeah. the dominant, yeah, yeah third yeah. class. And I think that is it's that kind of like nineties view of immigration and identity, and it also, like, partly also means that it has more of an emotional resonance when it comes That's to true. the actual sinking of the ship, like probably. Yeah. And we'll get to this, I guess, in a bit. That like I, I actually think the sinking of the ship is still quite emotionally affecting in a way that I didn't expect. Oh, it definitely, to be. yeah, yeah. And there's the scene. There's like. The, the bit that really stuck with me is like the, the mother reading to her kids and like telling them a story about that's, Ten and Og and like talking about that's, the afterlife. That's what gets me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think the first time I watched it, I was, I actually can't remember. I, I think, yeah, the, the kind of, at that point in the disaster when the movie kind of slows down to show those moments is, I think, the, the time when I'm really most affected by the scale yeah. of disaster. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I guess, thinking cynically maybe that like comes through better for an american audience in the 1990s because of this kind of yeah like this romanticized connection right. of violence that so many americans have but right. uh, yeah i guess i guess that's maybe a cynical like pessimistic reading of an audience's ability to, to relate to right. victims of a disaster but yeah you know I've... it definitely structures the kind of class relationships on board as well mm. that's also the scene where we see the elderly man and woman in the bed just kind of uh resigned to their fate as it were and that's based on a real couple um Mm. that is isadora and ida strauss uh isadora who owned macy's briefly and was in the congress um and a big new york guy and whose Mm. memorial to them uh, from their death in the titanic i saw in new york this summer but oh wow yeah i think the the story goes is that he or the um ida was offered a spot on a lifeboat and she said no i'm going to honor the vows of my marriage and stay with my husband to the end which is yeah just a little yeah um yeah yeah it's very like yeah you couldn't write that i guess (laughs) like well that's the thing about the titanic i maybe we can talk a little bit about adaptations now is that it is you can't obviously we have disaster movies and i think the titanic really set off a big um i don't know parade is the right term but you know we pearl harbor comes after this right it's kind of seen as another like attempt to kind of capture the magic of titanic Mm -hmm. but it's i guess the the facts of the historical right this ship going down and not enough light boats in the way you know the transatlantic voyage was lends itself quite well to this right to being kind of narrow you know fictionalized yeah absolutely and that there's the there is that sense of irony that comes through at different points in the film and especially like the kind of hubris of the people who had called the ship unsinkable which you know we're not pointing out plot holes but people didn't call the titanic unsinkable before it actually sailed that's just something that kind of made it seem like more of a tragedy afterwards but that's definitely part of it and that's i think a big part of what cameron's interested in but the reason it's so affecting and the reason it sticks with people so much isn't because the white star line designers and owners 
thought it wasn't going to sink, but because there's this kind of like phase of humour and suffering that comes through in it, people who didn't really necessarily have anything to do with the decisions that went into like constructing the ship, but right. still kind of suffering. Suffering from it. it. Actually, yeah. maybe st- take a step back from like other adaptations of it. I was thinking, I don't know, in my, when I work with Zoe, a lot of my work focuses, like you said, on suffragists mm-hmm. traveling the world. And there is kind of always the humbling moment when I find the letters um, them discussing, you know, the plans in case of their deaths, right? Or when they're right. describing in a letter um, of being on a ship to, in a storm and thinking like, oh, this might be the end. Mm-hmm. I, went, I was wondering like, yeah, how do you, I assume you kind of had to deal with that a lot in your own research as well or no? Not really, <laughs> no. no. Interesting, okay. Huh. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I guess not. Um, it's probably there if I was looking for it, but, but right. I never went looking for it. The, the thing that I came across a lot when it came to people writing about um, like voyages mm. it would just be people constantly describing getting seasick. That's kind yeah, of a, yeah. a common refrain that, that comes too. through yeah. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That people talk about illness. Like, never really that reckoning with mortality, but I guess maybe I wasn't looking for it. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think I also work with a bit more personal letters than other people yeah. might. But yeah, it is, you know, you yeah. kind of get like the one letter being like, oh, by the way, in the case of my death, because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, at least my suffragists, you know, are going on these world tours for like a year and a half. So it is a significant yeah. amount of time to be on yeah. uh, just kind of, you know, traveling. Uh, so I, w- I wonder if that. Yeah, I guess this is partly to do with the fact that the, the journeys your characters were taking was more far more seen as far more hazardous than the people yes. that I study and that are depicted in this film. And that, that's the thing. And um, this historian Donald Douglas Burgess mm-hmm. writes a lot about this. He's got this book called Engines of Empire about the age of like oceanic navigation and really the big trend at the second half of the 19th century is that the transatlantic voyage is getting increasingly safer and right. is also increasingly seen as safe in the kind of like public perception. Up until really about the 1870s, even though shipwrecks are getting rarer and rarer, um, there's this kind of like public distrust of uh, transatlantic navigation that mm-hmm. you're kind of putting yourself uh, in the hands of God and that like you put in your hands of a, in the hands of a raffle god and that anything that like if you go down that's essentially that's, your fault that's your own fault right yeah yeah it's, so yeah. then We're, maybe is the titanic is seen as a man-made dis- disaster right yeah yeah i think so and, and that's it like that, that kind of rhetoric comes back again after the sinking of the titanic but there's a big intervening period which is basically the exact period covered by my dissertation between the 1870s and 1914 where there's really like there's faith in transatlantic navigation i suppose right and it kind of ebbs again after the Titanic right. in a way that hadn't really been seen since before the 1870s. Interesting. Whereas I'm sure with the people you look at, there's maybe it's a little bit more cagey throughout that period. Yeah, I think, I mean, the two big tours I look at are 1909 and 19, between 1909 and 1912. Uh, there's certainly a sense, I mean, less so when they're going across the Atlantic, um, but, you know, when they're kind of in... Asia and Australia specifically, there's a big sense of like, this is the first and last time I will be here, right? Like just, mm-hmm. I'm never going to find myself in this part of the world again, because it yeah. is, you know, I think a transatlantic voyage is, even in this period when steam's getting more reliable, is a lot different from, uh, you know, a trip to Australia, mm-hmm. which is on the other side of the world and presents um, issues for suffragists working in the Pacific, uh, not to turn this into a suffrage episode, but um, <laughs> I had another thought. Oh, uh, there is. Um, so one of my suffragists is actually on her world tour when the Titanic happens. Right. And she doesn't find out about it until around July, I think. Um, and she finally, mm-hmm. you know, gets and manages to get a magazine. And she you know, in July is commenting like, oh, no, what a tragic thing. And then asking yeah. her partner, like, you know, did we know anybody on the Titanic? 
and yeah. I don't have the answer, but it is, yeah. you know, it's odd to think about, you know, you're on the other side of the world and thinking, oh, geez, I have to take one of those voyages back when I get back to Europe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's fascinating as well, because some of the coverage, some of the kind of academic analysis of the Titanic comments on how this is one of the first kind of like mass news events that's mm. uh, reported on basically simultaneously on both sides of the Atlantic and is being transmitted across. But then also by you talking about this woman who's on the other side of the world, you're also reminded of kind of limits of that globalization exactly. during this period yeah. that is definitely nowhere near as far reaching as you might be led to believe if you're like me restricting your focus mainly to this kind of like transatlantic the passage. transatlantic cat passage yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean you can see that in the movie right that the, the trust morse codes uh mm-hmm. this kind of like maybe like this idea that somebody will get them until they realize they are maybe there's almost like a false sense of connectivity and then just the realization that actually the farthest any boat is is four hours away yeah which i think is actually maybe a history i think i read something to the effect of another boat actually being closer and them turning off their radios for the night so they didn't respond to the titanic but you're right you know this false sense of connectivity yeah Mm. i think yeah telegraph the telegraph um kind of technicians were arguing across ships before it hit the iceberg apparently one had the ump of the other but yeah exactly Mm. that the titanic during its voyage, is producing a daily newspaper that's based on like wireless telegraph reporting. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so it's like producing news. So that's yeah. it for, for people on board the ship. It's like for them a connection to what's happening on shore, whereas okay. in reality, actually, you are still in the middle of the ocean. Right, you are. And the same way that like all these attempts to implement class boundaries and national boundaries as well, uh, ultimately, you are still on a ship that's in the middle of the ocean. Right. And, you know, the kind of national boundaries that we talked about a little bit earlier, hmm. they're also a lot more permeable and malleable than you might imagine. Like, even though it's a British ship and it's the White Star Line, by this point, I think the White Star Line is, like, controlled by trust, controlled by J.P. Morgan. So it's actually... There's a big, right? Yeah, there's kind of just, like, yeah. a glob, right? I mean, at this, I know, like, in the 1870s, right, there's kind of, like, a lot of different lines going around. But by this time, it is kind of just, like, one or two companies kind of controlling all yeah. transatlantic and even, I think, trans-Pacific passages, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, yeah. yeah. So so I realised by saying this, we're getting very much into the kind of like putting yourself in the hands of God kind of argument that people were making after 1912. But right. <laughs> there's an extent to which that is true, that, yeah, um, all these kind of categories and boundaries that are trying to be enforced. Right. Well, I think, of you know, the, kind of the story of the Titanic is also one about the limits of human technology. Yeah. 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 And there's an interesting point... Uh, uh, because that's kind of incomprehensible, I guess, to people um, like observers who didn't experience that. Right. Um, one of the inaccuracies in the film, although I understand why it's there, is um, during the evacuation of the ship, there's a big bit in like first, in third class where these barriers are put across right. the gateways to yes. stop steerage passengers like getting back Mobbing, on. Mobbing, yeah. Yeah. And from what I understand, that didn't actually happen. Ah, okay. So that's something but, Cameron... Yeah, they inserted because the reality of it is that the third class were just disadvantaged because of all these other like deeper, more structural reasons. The fact that they were further down the ship meant that they couldn't get out as quickly mm. and they were kind of restrained in other ways. It, it it was by that point, it was out of the hands of like the individual members of staff. It was like this trap that had been laid, I guess, quite a little bit earlier. Right. It was from the moment yeah. you board, maybe. Yeah. Which is yeah. Yeah, the terrible thing. But Yeah. Yeah. Because it, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about, isn't it? Cause it is, yeah. and I think uh, obviously I guess that's a choice that Cameron does to kind of heighten the fact that it's the, un- the unfairness of, I mean, th- 
I guess we know the situation of the lifeboats, right? There weren't enough for anybody, you know, yeah. for certainly not the entire ship to evacuate, even mm-hmm. if it happened to be an orderly and, you know, even evacuation. But yeah, just the unfairness of it all, right? That, yeah. 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 And I think that's where, where this point about class and affect and sensibility kind of falls down a little bit. Mm. That, um, from what I understand, that a lot of the men who were in first and second class really did buy, buy, abide by that, like women and children first rule, that like mm. they were willing to let their families go ahead. But because of this deep, kind of deep structured system of like segregation and class and stuff, it still meant that I think more women and children died in third class than any of the men in first class still. Like this separation like has consequences, even if you play things by the book, even if you don't have cow hockey trying to bribe his way onto a lifeboat you've still because of the system that you're living under and it's being implemented on the ship you're going to reap the consequences of that yeah even if everyone like follows the instruction can i get into my can i can i tell you my one other uh uh inaccuracy with this film which frustrated me even though i understand why it was please go back to the yeah the point on the segregation between the classes Mm -hmm. um it's absolutely there and it's depicted, but I h- hate how easily Jack and Rose just constantly go between first and second. So and third I was, class. Like, I was wondering, I was going to ask you about that, but then I was like, Ooh, like it, I don't want to, you know, get into the, you know, nitpicky inaccuracies. But so that is, does that stick out to you? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, it's weird. James Cameron's kind of like having his cake and eating it too. He's showing that this club, this ship is like very heavily stratified, right. but then also showing that, Oh, but of course Leonardo DiCaprio could come and like have dinner with first class people as long as he's right. like lended the tuxedo. That wouldn't have Is that happened. not the case then? Yeah. That wouldn't, no, it wouldn't have happened. Like, you know, the whole system of the class segregation is like predicated on keeping this like very rigid Strict separation lines. between Even people. if you have a Even, tuxedo or yeah. save a woman's life from yeah. the side yeah. of the boat. Well, and I think maybe that's it as well. Like the meet cute between um, Rose and Jack where he saves her from throwing herself off of the edge of the boat. Right. I don't think there'd ever really be a social situation where they'd be close enough for him to be able that's to That's kind of, a, yeah, an interesting like blurring of the, of the lines, right? Because Jack is kind of up on the top decks a lot and you kind of wonder yeah. i guess he sees her earlier and he's obviously like besotted by her so maybe he's yeah. following her around the boat for lack of a better word but uh yeah, yeah it's it, it's more common for members of the first class to go down into like the okay second well that was my other question right rose yeah, in the as, the party scene yeah yeah is it and this is kind of like broader trend of the late 19th early 20th century of like social observation of the lower classes you know yeah. people talk about slumming in a lot of places or you can think about people going from downtown manhattan up into harlem during the harlem right. renaissance is kind of this idea but from what i understand it would have had to be a little bit more covert on okay. the case of the, the steamship than rose going down and like dancing and just dancing getting up on her toes yeah, yeah. okay yeah and then all of that culminates in the fact that they really easily managed to get into the boiler room of the ship, even before it hits an iceberg, right? When they're running away from, I think from Cal. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Is or that? Is it... I think that's like just no. That is that is shortly before the iceberg hits, right? Because then they're yeah. they're on ship and they kind of distract the people looking for an iceberg, and you think, ooh, yeah. are they responsible for? Yeah, <laughs> probably not. But yeah, that would have big consequences. Yeah, but that one, that that one for sure, like that definitely wouldn't have happened. No, it, and it's not a bigger historical point to make about that. But that was just then other than just like it would not be as easy to run through the boiler rooms. No, with yeah, abandoning glee. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. this is kind of pretty rigidly segregated. No, I mean, I like to talk about the big differences. I mean, you know, kind of the movie as a historical text, but there's always room for nitpicking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Why are we historians if not to nitpick? Yes, which I think you know if we maybe. Uh, just to start the reception talk um, yeah I think uh, what are they called um, big fans of the Titanic who are very concerned about accuracy 
mm. rivet counters, right? They want to make sure mm. like it is exactly, you know, the accuracy is the top goal. They're counting every single rivet on the side of the boat to make sure like that the movie Titanic is the same as the ship Titanic. Yeah. 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 Uh, I hope there aren't any Titanic experts listening to this podcast because I apologize. I'm not an expert, yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm not an expert in the rivets at all. But from what I understand, James Cameron is a bit of a Titanic. Yes, I think. Well, I was... think that's how he got the movie because it's you know his career yeah. is interesting because he starts up he's the Terminator guy and then he does Aliens mm-hmm. and then he does the second Terminator movie and then it's a Titanic, right? Like it's yeah. such a seismic shift from what he had done, and yeah. from what you're saying, it just stems from this obsession with the shipwreck itself which yeah. we didn't haven't really spoken about but the, the the kind of frame device of the movie are these treasure hunters looking for the necklace and yeah. the shots they show of the sunken titanic are the real sunken titanic james yeah. cameron convinced the movie studio to fund him to go down and get actual shots of the titanic versus paying for however much uh you know the special effects would have cost to, to achieve the same thing yeah exactly and I guess that's it, that this film could have only been made after 1985 when the Titanic is right. discovered. That Yeah, he's that kind of commitment to authenticity. That, so in, t- in terms of other depictions of the shipwreck, right. A Night to Remember in 1958, I think. I think that's is, the big one that has the biggest influence on this. Yeah, and that's like the purist's film, I think. If you're a, like a real Titanic head, that's right. the one that you like. I understand but it's not are... really a... F- I mean, it's a. It's not really like a narrative feature either. It's more of like a documentary, right? Like it's kind of yeah. interspice or interspliced with, yeah, acting and explanation yeah and it's based on a book that came out a couple of years earlier okay. by walter lord which is kind of like a historical account of it but cameron yeah it's kind of building on that but also using some of the discoveries from the discovery of the titanic so i think the big the big change that is in this movie which isn't in any of the previous depictions is that the boat uh the ship sorry splits in half as it's going down so we didn't know about that until the 80s. We didn't know that until That's 1985. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And most of the eyewitness um, reports from the sinking of the Titanic at the time didn't report on that, I guess, because of like the well, chaos. It's dark, of what was right? And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he is, he is building on that. Right. But then there's also this bigger point about to go back on the kind of like hubris and man mm. versus nature and technology. That also kind of comes through in the depiction of the um, excavation scenes as well, isn't it? That Definitely. like this crew are a bit like bro y. Uh, yeah. kind of emotion they're, they're depicted as kind of like emotionally detached it's quite clinical at the start of the movie yeah and then they're gradually run over by the, roses the human incredibly trauma. touching yeah 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 which i guess is yeah, the other you know i guess what we're maybe meant to be if we're coming into it thinking like oh this like you know terrible disaster or all this yeah. Uh, yeah, terrible disaster and we don't i think it's you know it's easy to forget about the human loss of that yeah yeah yeah, and then she obviously has the last laugh throwing the heart of the ocean overboard at the end of the sea. That, like, you know, for all of this work, all of this kind of discovery, excavation of the ship, uh, is still still this, it like, belongs to the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yep. exactly. Until Britney Spears' yeah. boyfriend finds it and gives it to her in the um, "Oops, I Did It Again" music video. Oh, of course, <laughs> I hadn't connected to that. Yeah, I so I'd seen that music video, yeah. but obviously didn't. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, I think was my first. That 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 may have been my first like. Uh, first true brush with titanic that that music mm-hmm. video because i was like what's this necklace <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so do you want to talk more about the kind of reception <laughs> yes of the please Sorry. yeah it's yeah I mean, so this is 25 years old yeah 25 yes. years old now which makes it too old for leonardo dicaprio to date it <laughs> I, need to get, I need to get that one in there um <laughs> very good but it, it was huge right when it yeah, came I, out I, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's kind of almost impossible to understate how big this movie was which is interesting, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, so James Cameron convinced the studios to 
you know, let him go and literally film the actual shipwreck. And then he was filming this and they built a giant like replica of the Titanic in Mexico and then they sunk it. And it sounds like production was terrible, like, you know, kind of hellish for most people in the crew. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Kate Winslet like chipped an elbow or something. Uh, So movie executives were nervous to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think the first kind of screenings were like, okay, mildly positive. And then it, you know, comes out and it just, just like it's it's just the biggest thing since ever right like i don't Mm -hmm. i I need to brush up on my blockbuster movie history but it's huge right i think it opens in december of 97 and then it runs until october of 98 it is just in theaters for ages sold out showings which is i think also a testament to how powerful it is because it's like we said it's a three hour long movie yeah and to you know, it's not just something like, oh, I really enjoyed that movie. I you know, ninety minutes. Let's go see it again. It is a commitment to bring people to go again to find the time, like on the weekend, to go see it. And mm-hmm. the fact that so many people saw it so many times. Yeah. Yeah. And just yeah, biggest, uh, you know, top of the box office. On a, I mean, even it's kind of interesting. I think you know, a lot of with the superhero craze, there's been a lot of new, um, you know, biggest grossing movie of all time entries but the mo- the list that is adjusted for inflation has stayed pretty much the same right. and it is currently number three adjusted for inflation of all time mm-hmm. estimates only under gone with the wind and avatar so wow. until then it was two right just huge and then of course it like yeah. sweeps the academy awards it is uh it, let me get the numbers right because they're specific. Um, <laughs> but it is nominated for 14 Oscars, which ties the record set for All About Eve. Uh, best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Kate Winslet, Best Supporting Actress for Gloria Stewart, who plays the elder um, uh, Rose, which I find kind of interesting since she's in the movie for about 11 minutes, but it's yeah. fine. Um, I think it's one of, the, one of these things with the Academy kind of like paying back someone yeah yeah because she was she was a golden uh kind of a star of the golden age um art direction cinematography costume design film editing makeup original dramatic score original song of course my heart will go on um Mm -hmm. best sound best sound editing and visual effects and it only lost actress supporting actress and makeup uh it it was the only it was the second only movie to win 11 oscars in one night which is the record um the first was ben-hur and Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings is are, is the only one after that, uh, so just <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think it I, I think it's to do with the the scale of the success and also the scale of the production. I read an interesting anecdote about what the how the award ceremony like played out on a night. And first of all, there's James Cameron. I think when when he won Best Director, that he goes up on stage and says, "I'm King of the World," and of puts his arms does. in yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> which like I think has a different resonance when it's this like multi-millionaire film director shouting it compared to oh, like yeah, poor nowadays, artists, right? Like, yeah, yeah, who's at the front of the Titanic. The other one was um, in the musical performances that were like interspersed throughout the night. Right. Is that so I think Celine Dion singing "My Heart Will Go On," and then was followed by Elliot Smith singing a song uh, that was the sound from the soundtrack for "Goodwill Hunting." Oh. And Elliot Smith tells a story about like Celine Dion like offering words of advice, and you know, I'm a big fan of Elliot Smith, big fan of Good Will Hunting. It's a great movie, yeah. but there's kind of orders of magnitude in terms of like scale and like grandiosity and spectacle mm-hmm. between 
Go Bill Hunting and Titanic, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I think yeah, Celine exactly. Dion also wore a replica of The Heart of the Ocean, I think I saw um, for the yeah. Oscars. Yeah, so they really leaned into it. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, it's a, like I mentioned kind of at the top of it, it's become a cultural touchstone, right? Just, mm-hmm. you know, still references. I only, <laughs> this is very embarrassing to admit, but like I only a few weeks ago realized that the I Jump, You Jump Jack from Gilmore Girls is from Titanic, not from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's one of those movies where there's just it's all just these everywhere. different touchstones and moments and shots that you realise have been parodied or yep. referenced in so many other like media products. Yeah. yeah. I was kind of constantly having that feeling of deja vu as I was watching this movie, yep. even though I'd never seen it before. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Was there any, were there any kind of like references that you were surprised by that like, oh, like this is from Titanic or had you kind of... Oh, you, you, you put me on the spot now. Uh... Mm. none that jumped to mind okay. sorry Katie. no that's fine yeah. Yeah. yeah but it is you know i mean i i am a frequent use of the um it's been 84 years gif uh so that kind of oh, yeah. that kind of came on and i was like oh, yes yeah yeah <laughs> and actually that that was that was one that i hadn't realized was from oh, titanic okay. because okay. because i didn't i wasn't aware of yeah kind of were like you aware of the device framing device or was it no yeah no i wasn't yeah, yeah. so that was one to... where i realized that that was okay. titanic yeah interesting yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, I think that framing device is an interesting one, just in terms of like where it situates it in history and how it connects with the kind of broader themes of the film. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it is. I think what well, you mentioned a few minutes ago, this idea of the the kind of treasure hunters themselves being too reliant on technology. I it hadn't struck me before that that's kind of an analog to the idea of the ship itself, right? Because there was the one moment early in the film when he says like, "Oh, we're like so many feet underwater, the pressure outside could kill us in an instant." And there's just yeah. going to be a testing fate uh, as yeah, they're literally exactly, looking yeah. at the thing that is the, the yeah, <laughs> the one ship that did that. Um, yeah. And it also, I guess, frames the love story at the heart of the film, which we've oh, of course, understandably of not spent too long on. But I think Cameron was quite clear that he wanted to make people interested in the tragedy of the Titanic and use this as his kind of in into that. Day. He wasn't right. as interested in Rose and Jack as he was in this disaster. And I guess having elderly rose kind of connect with this excavation team is the rationale for doing that right and that makes i don't know yeah i don't know if if people would have really had too many questions if they hadn't had that frame but it's just kind of helps yeah join the dots a i think bit. it helps i almost wonder if it like helps the audience or kind of gives an audience a sense of like oh like you know everything will be you know she survives right because i mean i, I know i remember certainly the first time i watched it I, and I knew that Jack died because the whole door discourse was already in full swing. You know, like, could Jack fit on mm-hmm. the door? No, <laughs> they show yeah. he can't. Um, uh, but, you know, this kind of like, maybe like just like a, a sense of assurance, like somebody does survive this, like, you know, this wreck, right? Like, it's kind of like, all right, I know that elderly Rose is telling the story in the present. So I know that she, you know, she will survive right there it this movie will not be total death and destruction there's at least one person yeah. that we know gets off the mm-hmm. boat and then i almost i almost wonder i mean now it's hard to imagine like was you know going into a movie titanic i don't think you're necessarily expecting a happy ending but the fact you know like we see rose as an elderly woman and she is supposed to be like 104 or something if there was any suggestion in people's minds watching the movie like oh does jack make it too Mm-hmm. And has just died, you know, off the Titanic. Yeah. Because we, we see she has a granddaughter. Yeah. 
I don't. Yeah, I guess so. I like that. That's that. That whole part of her life is left open because I was wondering when Jack sinks. I was thinking, oh, is she going to reconcile with Cal Hockey and they're going to uh, like find love together? Yeah, no. exactly. Yeah. I was thinking, <laughs> how does that plot hole get filled? But it's just that there's this. She just presumably this. Yeah, she meets another man who. Right. Is you know. Well, I guess yeah, yeah. and then she says she you know she never together. she's never like told that story before and there's yeah there's the. I guess even more cynical submarine guy who's like, no, this lady's a fraud. She doesn't appear yeah. into the 1920s and her yeah. name is, you know, her name wasn't on the passenger list. But so there's like an yeah. ambiguity there until I think the irrefutable fact that she has the heart of the sea in her pocket. But um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 She never let go, Jack. That was kind of like, you yeah. know, she keeps that with her no matter what she does. Yep. Then she lets in me. the intervening years. Mm. And I'm quite, I'm quite glad that that absence isn't necessarily filled in so much. Oh, definitely. Like yeah. 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 Like happy we just know that she has like, you know, amazing. She, I guess that's the lesson she learns from Jack is that, you know, to kind of like live his kind of speech during that dinner scene we talked about when he puts on the tux and goes yeah. up to first class. He gives a speech about, you know, kind of living each day to its fullest and you never know what life is going to hand you, which in this case, good words to be to say on the Titanic. Uh, yeah. and then she does that and she lives each day uh, like it's its fullest at least from what we can tell yeah so I guess I, I don't know I, I, do you want to say anything else about the reception because I mean it is just it's just uh, from what I understand as well I, and I didn't go back and read too many reviews but I understand that there's a bit of a gulf between the critical reception and the public reception with some notable yes. I know Ebert Roger Ebert was quite uh, yes like positive on the film yes. but I think a lot of other people were a bit like frosty towards it I th- it's interesting I think it kind of you know, 25 years on, I think it is still, I think it is, it, I think now it has entered that kind of vaulted area of untouchable movies. But from mm. the research I did, I got the sense that in the early 2000s, which maybe I can also attest to like growing up with, you know, kind of post Titanic phase of people being like, oh, it's so sincere. It's so melodic, you know, yeah. kind of a backlash to its massive success. Yeah. Right. I think Robert Altman, the uh, the director, came out and was like, that was trash, right? Like, just kind of like, you know, the years after the movie, people kind of started coming out and saying, like, did we, like, you know, obsess over a movie that maybe wasn't that good? Yeah. But, yeah. Hollywood and the end of history. Right. I guess. Yeah. That, yeah. Kind of, but I, I mean, I think yeah. it, I think now it's f- firmly entered the just like the classic untouchable kind of, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think from what I see yeah. online and stuff. Yeah. I agree, yeah. And it, what, I don't want to get to... Like, I didn't love this movie watching it. Mm. Like, it didn't absolutely blow me away, but I guess I didn't expect it to blow me away. I think sure. it's more to do with the context of it and the scale. and The scale, yeah. yeah. The, the, the filmmaking behind it, which is undeniably like, a very high it's quality. It's very good, yeah. yeah. And it is still very emotionally affecting, as I mentioned, that scene where people first fall into the water and then yeah. you have to kind of zoom out and the pan across. Like, yeah. Yeah, maybe think twice about the kind of, like, levity that I'd approach the rest of the movie with, which I think is intentional. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, is there anything else you wanted to bring up before we kind of wrap things up? Well, yeah, on the, I guess on the point of levity and how people approached the topic, one thing that I did want to talk a little bit about was mm. race mm. as it relates to both the film, uh, the kind of whiteness of the film, mm-hmm. but also uh, how people reacted to the, the sinking of the Titanic. Mm. So um, obviously race is historically contingent, but from the perspective of like the 1990s and then the 2020s, the entire cast of this film is white, white. from what I understand. Yeah. I can't remember the excavation crew, but yeah, every yeah. passenger on the ship is white. I think so. Uh, and that's you get, not you far get, like, off. Two, yeah. I, there's like one kind of like sad moment during the panic of the sh- sinking when you see kind of a, I, I think they're maybe credited in the movie or the credits as like a Syrian family who have right. a dictionary and are trying to, un, you know, read a sign as everybody's panicking and like trying to get to the exit. But that's right. the only okay. thing that yeah. sticks out to me. So 
Uh, for, that wasn't too far off of the historical reality mm. of it, which is quite rare mm. for the time. Um, so it turns out there was a Haitian family on board the ship, okay. and I think that wasn't known at the time that Titanic was released. It was like it was a, a Haitian French family. Found. Yeah, yeah, who were like a black family on board. Um, but there also weren't any um, uh, non-white people working in the boiler room, mm. like working in the crew of the ship, which is rare because a lot of African-Americans worked as like uh, stoking coal right. on ships by this point. They previously had like a much more prominent role in uh, staffing ships through the 19th century, but kind of increasingly segregationist employment practices like pushed black people out of uh, transatlantic voyages. Mm. All of which is to say that it was seen at the time and understood as a mostly white tragedy. Uh, and it doesn't take long after the sinking of the Titanic for a lot of people, especially in the US, to kind of react and to almost like parody the sinking of the Titanic from this perspective. So... Alan Rice has written a lot about this. I think a lot of other historians have written about like how the sinking of the Titanic was like racialized as white very quickly through this um, literary mode of Titanic toasts that come out in the years mm. following. So like a bunch of poems and songs were published uh, by black musicians, essentially making fun of the sinking of the Titanic. There's an urban myth that comes out pretty quickly after the sinking that the boxer Jack Johnson mm -hmm. had attempted to buy passage on the Titanic and been denied. Uh, been denied a ticket on board the Titanic, right. and which I don't think actually happened. Uh, I, I don't think he did try to um, purchase passage, but uh, yeah, there's these jokes about how, like, you know, Jack Johnson said he won't haul coal on the Titanic, and look what happens to it. Yeah. Um, Lead Belly, uh, the blues oh, singer yeah. from the 1930s, yeah, sings a song called The Titanic where he mentions Jack Johnson really? um, huh. being on board it and surviving and doing. Uh, uh, he, he's either no, he's not on board. He doesn't get on board the, the Titanic and does a dance when he hears that the, the ship sinks. Okay. And even later, I think so. When he's singing that song in the nineteen thirties, he talks about hearing that as a child. So this is a song that's kind of been kind in of circulation been since he's the nineteen recording it, yeah. Yeah, and even later in like the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, there's this toast um, based on the fictional story of a black stoker who had worked on board of the, the ship, mm -hmm. a guy who's known by the name Shine, which is like a kind of racial epithet used at the time. But was like reclaimed and as i mentioned the crew was entirely white but there's a story that's circulated by comedians in the 1950s and 1960s of this black stoker uh who'd um yeah who'd survived the ship and basically like in a series of like increasingly elaborate historical scenarios that managed to survive the tinkering of the ship as the kind of wealthy white passengers uh died mm. in in the ocean so rudy raymore uh who was like a big comedian in the early 1960s recorded a number of versions of this about shine on the titanic interesting and yeah so I'm it not, has it has quite a long shelf life as well yeah yeah exactly yeah and i'm not allowed to swear on this podcast but i would recommend like going and looking up maybe some of the lyrics to some of rudy raymore's uh okay. songs about the titanic because they're quite like they're quite sexually graphic interesting okay yeah funny yeah so what i mean to say is that moment of levity like still it's definitely there uh -huh. um like in the kind of uh, like literary culture, literary musical cultures that are produced outside of the Titanic. Right. And it's definitely connected with race. And I don't want to belabor this point too much, but it's also probably partly to do with like the sanctity of like certain tragedies against other tragedies. Like Alan Rice talks a lot about how this, the tragedy of the Titanic compares in the minds of like the public compared to the middle passage where mm. like far more people died in a far more systemic and far more intentional way right. over the course of like hundreds of years. Yeah, I think yeah. that's yeah. kind of... I'm, Rose's comment at the beginning of the movie saying like for me you know people called it the ship of dreams for me I saw it as a slave ship taking me to the new world in chains yeah. I don't know if 
that would be advisable to kind of include in the script today? Because I mean, I can certainly see the, the metaphor there, um, mm-hmm. but it's uh, you know, ex- experiencing the Titanic versus the Middle Passage is quite a different yeah. thing. Very different. Yes. Even in even in the case of people in steerage or in third classes, yes. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Worlds. Uh, worlds, uh, worlds. Yeah. Worlds difference, isn't it? Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No. Thank you for. Your, yes. I had no idea. That, thank you for bringing that yeah. uh, kind of. Yeah. To the forefront. I think it's interesting as well. Yeah. Um, the historian who reviewed it for the Journal of American History also pointed out that um, at the time, after immediately after the passage, or sorry, the um, the disaster, papers kind of racialized the white passengers as well as kind of like this like anglo-saxon the bravery right like oh these men went you know put the women and children first because they're anglo-saxon mm. men and they're very brave yeah so this idea of kind of the anglo-saxon um uh you know continuity between america and the england or sorry yeah america and england as well uh mm. you know surrounding the ship in its disaster yeah, yeah. which and that's a great point and it also a kind of like note of irony because one of the other famous passengers who dies on board titanic was wt stead who was a journalist yes. but was also wrote very notably about the connections between british and american cultures and often framed it in terms of this kind of like yeah anglo-saxon civilizational superiority and then he yeah he dies on went board, down the so. ship no. yeah yeah i just liked him uh that uh journal of american history historian is stephen beale so thank you nice. dr beale um Thanks. yeah i think that's is there anything else like any, you know comments on like the music or the costumes or you know kind of any general not really thoughts I, about the movie you want to share before we wrap things up not really i know we've like we've kind of been bouncing all over the place yeah. as we go. <laughs> I, I guess i i'm assuming listeners if they've not seen the film will have to keep going back to that one minute plot summary because i realize we've been talking about class both before and after the, the collision with the iceberg etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think it's just interesting just to, to kind of like wrap up how there's these kind of like themes that run throughout the movie but also there's this kind of like tonal whiplash that comes exactly halfway through and some of that stuff carries over people like cow hockey not really understanding but also understanding his place of in like american society but then there's other things that just immediately seem like kind of trivial yeah well i think that is our episode on titanic then thank you so much for coming on lewis it's been a great discussion uh it's been great to talk about this kind of with like a historian's eye it is yeah, the movie's interesting for history. I think I what I, maybe I, I know I started the sign off thing, but then I I, I got drawn mm-hmm. back in. <laughs> what do you? I, I don't know. Like you know, to an audience member who maybe doesn't really know much about the uh, transatlantic passage in the Gilded and Progressive era, and then watches the Titanic, what would you like say to them? I guess what's your interpretation of this movie as history, or as yeah, it pre- um, presents history? I think it's a really insightful history of one particular moment in like transatlantic navigation both in terms of the sinking of the titanic but also in terms of like what things look like in the early 1910s mm. um, and we get kind of insights into these broader systems like what's going on in terms of class and gender and race on board but uh yeah i guess don't rely on it right too much Jack- it's very specific it's con- <laughs> like yeah, any movie right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's it yeah I, I realize that's a bit of like a kind of a non-answer no, but it's, it's, um, yeah 
yeah, there's definitely parts of it that are accurate, but don't rely on this as your kind of like one uh, historical depiction of the transatlantic passage. Instead, you should read my book when it eventually comes there out. There we go. There's the plug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, uh, thank yeah, thank you, Lewis, for coming on and for that quick uh, impromptu answer. Um, Thanks, Katie. Uh, yeah, and like I said, like it's I was going to ask you if there's anything you wanted to plug, but it sounds like there is. Uh, what's the title of your forthcoming book? Oh no, we're a long, oh, a long, long way, way, a long way from that. Okay, then... I submitted my PhD last year, and I've right. barely looked right. at it since then. <laughs> Eventually, Eventually, you'll be able to read. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I can't even remember the title that I've got on the CV. That's fine, but be on the lookout for that, <laughs> listeners. Uh, yeah. And is there any like? Do you, do you want to plug your Twitter or any other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Lewis De Freites. Um I used to do a podcast called the Cambridge american history seminar podcast which was running for a few years and apparently people are going to revive in october i won't be running it but you should check it out if you're looking for some cross-institutional oxford to cambridge alliance yes. if you're listening from <laughs> oxford and you're interested in what's happening over at cambridge give a listen to that podcast when it starts up again great yeah but yeah cool. it's been really fun katie thanks for having yeah me. of course thank you um and listeners if you want to keep uh you know posted on lewis's work and check out that cambridge history american history podcast you could check him out there on twitter And with that, that has been our episode on Titanic. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter at FlashbackHistopod. That is at F-L-S-H-B-C-K-H-I-S-T-O-P-O-D. And we will be back again soon to take another look at American history on the silver screen. Until then, goodbye.